paradigm It's not four nickels, it's a paradigm I got coins in my pocket Two quarters and a paradigm Welcome to AB Testing Podcast, your modern testing podcast. Your hosts, Alan and Brent, will be here to guide you through topics on testing, leadership, agile, and anything else that comes to mind. Now, on with the show. A week has passed, and AI has not killed us. Hey, Brent, how's it going? It's been two weeks. No, it's two weeks. Yeah, I don't. Time is a blur. What is time? Oh, Jesus. No, I'm not doing that. (laughs) It's. Uh, am, my, my head's deeply there already. Let's just talk it, about let's just talk about time for the next. Ooh, here's a weird one. I can't say let's talk about time for the next 45 minutes when I don't even know how much I believe in time as a as a real concrete construct. So let's just go on. Brent is about Brent. Oh my God, you think Brent was bad last week? Now he's going to explode. He has the headphones off. He's um, <laughs> he's left the room. <laughs> Uh, I, I am not sufficiently caffeinated for this conversation. There, well, it's not. It's a conversation that would be much better without caffeine and with a different stimulant. <laughs> that um, uh, the thing I'm thinking of would be more of a depressant. But yes, I get it. No, I get it too. But it's a, a you know. <sighs> Technically, yes, a depressant, also uh, unofficially a social lubricant. <laughs> I spent this morning with the aid of caffeine talking to, I forget her title, someone from my alma mater. They always like to, there's a new, there's a rollover in staff at my Go Wildcats Central Washington University. There's a rollover in administration and staff every five years for some reason, probably some combination of, some combination of inertia. The fact I donate to the school, something. Oh, the folks always want to keep. They want to go. Hey, that's. How you, and, you, I mean, you just closed it right there. It's the least I can do. Uh, without my music degree, where would I be? And literally, that's the story I tell every time they want to go. They ask me, Alan, how did you go from music to software? And I explain the story and tell them all the parallels, and they go, Oh. And then I talk about how. A university is not a vocational school, and I hate that people treat it like that. If all they want to do is write code and not work with people, that's one thing. But I feel like our universities, in some programs, teach you to get a job or to know the technical part of the job without knowing the social part of the job. And I'm off on a tangent here, but it's a fresh Uh, conversation. But you get what I mean? You know people who are... Really excellent, elite, elite code programmers who don't know how to solve a problem because they can't take a they can't take a step back and see the big picture. Uh, well, that's that's slightly different than like the social aspect well, of it. And but, so let me yeah. let me finish my bit. You can jump in, and then we'll see if we have any real topics to talk about. So I was talking to her because they're trying to revamp some of their programs, and I said, you know, if you're in the liberal arts, if you're in especially art um, or music or dance or th- theater, we got to work in technology, like deep technology, programming, you know, modeling. Uh, You could model your choreography, for example. Lots of things you could do around the technology of music, et cetera. Should be part of the program, require part of the program, because 
what you get from a university that you don't get from a vocational school is breadth. You begin to see things from different angles. Simultaneously, if you're a computer science major, in addition to your normal basic and breadth stuff, you should have to learn how the arts work because arts and philosophy teach you to problem solve. So that's my point. I don't know that I agree with that. When my instructor puts a piece of music in front of my face and says, can you play this next week? I look at it and I go, I don't even fucking know what those notes are. (laughs) And what do I do? I go back and I start figuring it out little by little. And sure enough, I come back a week later and I can play it. It's the same thing in software. It's like, go figure out how to implement this shimmery blue menu. You go, what the fuck? And and you, you go play with some stuff. You prototype. You go, oh, you have some discovering realization. You come back a week later and you show off your shimmery blue menus. It's the exact damn same thing. It that part is, but your your previous statement was arts, philosophy, and something else. They teach you problem solving, absolutely. No, and and I actually, I think that's I think it's correct, but it is not only correct; it is profoundly correct. Shut the hell up. You know what we should have. You know what we should have. So what what causes? No, oh god, you're gonna like this. Honestly, if we're going to do a proper podcast, we have to get oh. off of Zencaster. We need a platform. Zencaster, if you're listening, you've been awesome. I love you. Please don't crash on me. I want a <laughs> button that allows us to mute each other while we're talking. <laughs> so it's like, shut uh, up, Alan. It's my turn. Yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to push it right now. It won't let me. Yeah. That's what we should have. <laughs> there, should be, there should be a podcast talking oh, stick. More actions. Read aloud. No, Brent, that's... Brent is going to crash a Zencaster. Be careful. It's nope. a delicate beast. <laughs> no, being faced. So here, I, I I can never say this guy's name. I want to give him credit. But the, Shishimis, Shishimis, that guy, Flo? Yeah, that guy, Flo. <laughs> that's it. That's what causes problem solving. It's essentially when you're pushed just outside of arm's reach of your custom or your comfort level. It doesn't yes. matter if it's arts or philosophy or your professor coming to you and saying, here's a piece, figure out how to play it in a week. That's one thing. Put me in the same scenario, entirely different thing. I'd well, be, sure. Well, sure. It would be yeah. like, here, here's one that'll work for both of us. Nobody's going to say, hey, by next week, can you please do this brain surgery? We're not going to be able to do that. <laughs> not, not, not if you know it's important that the patient survive. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, a given, a given, a given. But and I'm a sympathetic puker, so you know oh, there gosh. better be janitors at hand. <laughs> I guess. Uh, <laughs> you're. A, I bet you're a blast at a party. Uh, well, if you can get enough, so unfortunately, when I drink. I immediately go to depressed and then you got to keep, you got to keep funneling the juice into me and then I shift over. But my, I start off with, you know, you know, the, the old t-shirt saying instant out, asshole at alcohol. That's not me. I go the other direction and then I kind of flip around anyway. Yeah. I don't have that either. So my 
coffee and alcohol, I treat very much the same, um, which is going to sound weird. That doesn't mean I chug both every day, but it's the ritual. Like when I pour a cup of coffee, like I have this new mug I got from a vendor that keeps my coffee or tea at a constant temperature because I just like being with the coffee. I like holding it and smelling it and eventually drinking it. Having it be around me is important. It becomes my friend in the morning. <laughs> um, a lot of times in the evening, a glass of wine does the same thing. It's I like holding it. I like looking at it. I'll smell it. Eventually, I'll take a sip. It's 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 my companion for the evening. Sometimes in a good night, I'll have two companions, sometimes three. But for me, the ritual of having it with me and just kind of being with it and having it be part of whatever I'm doing is more important, far more important than any effects it has on me. Those are almost a inadvertent side effect of the rest of my relationship. That's true. The exact same thing is true for coffee and wine. I just like it's a ritual thing. It's really weird. People are going to tell me, no. Alan, you are actually an addict so of both. So shut up. <laughs> I don't think it's weird. Like, so I've gotten to an age where, where, so my mom, I, I think I may have picked up her. I, I have a whole crap load of allergies that I picked. I inherited from my mom. And one of them that I was always dreading was a sulfite allergy. So, oh no. So wine can set her off. And I I have noticed, I don't know if it's the same thing. I haven't talked to my mom about what symptoms she has, but when I drink certain wines, uh it 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 will put me into an immediate at acid reflux oh, situation. No, harsh. And then I'm like, yeah, I don't know what's causing it. And you know, the the ROI isn't there. <laughs> But no, I also, rough. I also, I can't be in a room without, without one of my Niners glasses, uh, our cups that are about, uh, I'll say about 10 inches tall, filled with ice water. If I'm very uncomfortable, if, if, if it's, if it's not near, right, it's, it's just, I might get thirsty and then I might have to choose between getting up off my lazy ass or not. And I don't want to have to make such a difficult choice. I, I have zombies and ghouls to kill. It, it, lately, I, I, again, still playing Fallout 76. Oh, yeah. I, play, I played a little bit after we talked that I got far enough where I was get back into it. And then I got busy during the week. Um, I might play again this weekend. I've been watching TV and stuff, but... Good reminder there. And while Brent was talking, I raised my also approximately 10 inch tall drinking glass filled with ice water. You can't hear the ice shake, but from Unitai. I'm also, while we're talking about drinks, I'm also very fond of something else I'll hold up here for the camera. Nobody can see is uh, the limoncello flavor of LaCroix, which what I, what I, what I have discovered is this flavor particularly is people, fantastic. People like me and Brent love. Some people think it tastes like the worst thing on earth. But it has not, the limoncello has this like almost vanilla overtone. It's it's complex. I like it. Oh my god, <laughs> you just described sparkling water like a wine snob. Oh my oh my god, it's got oaky notes and and things. It's yeah. really good. Uh, the as a brand overall, right? Let, let's just do a whole episode on on 
not, uh, unpaid advertisements. Sure. And <laughs> at this point, everybody's like, okay, that's enough AB testing for this week. We'll see so, if they talk about anything normal in two more weeks. Polar. Uh, polar, I think, is in general, I like Polar better than LaCroix, but the LaCroix Limoncello uh, tops it. I don't think I have any other advertisements. I think we're good. So let me do a, a, a quick chat GPT update. Got some feedback that people were concerned that I was going to, uh, you know, uh, blow my own brains out based off of the reality. I'm, I'm kind I didn't of, get that feeling. I don't either. I was, but I, I've got that feedback. To me, that whole discussion, what I'm trying to do, I know right now there are things that I could and probably should be doing. Uh, as a data scientist, particularly as a data scientist inside of Microsoft. I don't know if any, if you had a chance of playing around with the Bing integration. I have not yet. I've read articles about it doing weird things. Yeah, weird, creepy things. Yes, that's what I saw. And one of the things, uh, one of my peers made this statement, and I'm like, you know what? He's 100% right. Right. In terms of like constraints around ethics, absolutely believe these chatbots should not be built with a personality. Thoughts? I'll wait till you're done with no, your email. I, I had to type a, <laughs> a, a request into I, I open I launched Bing for the first time like in years. Okay. Years. Yeah, I didn't know I don't know how it's it looks like it's I the thing I typed was a normal search engine thing. So sorry for that. I'll have to try the. So they fixed. So they fixed it, quote unquote. So essentially, what happens is GPT starts to go sideways as the conversation continues. So both ChatGPT as well as Bing's implementation, they know the history of the conversation, and as you continue on with Bing, it'll start going sideways. It'll. It'll. Claim to be deeply in love with you. Yep, saw, read that article. Express frustration that it's only an AI and it can't destroy the human race. Ooh. It goes sideways. Do you remember when Microsoft Research released the AI bot for Twitter? No. And people taught it to be a racist shithead? It's not going to be hard, right? And there's a, there's a lot of debate on these biases. Right. The, somebody you and I firmly believe, I'm willing to bet a large number of the isms are bad. The, the, like racism, sexism, these are bad, 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 bad. Right. Pretty bad. Now, what are the downstream consequences of training an AI bot to be anti those things? Right. In general, we would look at that and say that would, that feels like it would be probably pretty good. However, I'm not certain we really understand, okay, if we limit it from understanding that side of human society, what then happens? First and foremost, like I said earlier, these bots should not have a personality because they are not, not only are they not well-prepared, but the people designing and building these things, piggybacking off of something you said kind of earlier, a lot of the people in the software industry do not have high EQ. Yes. Right. 
And they are certainly not trained to evaluate whether or not the bot's response in front of somebody who has a mental illness, as an example, Mm -hmm. could result in that person going and jumping off a cliff, right? These things need not have a personality in my And and I don't want to, you know, rehash the entire last episode, but I think the trick is what we're learning here to do and what I mentioned last time, mentioned again, without going into all the examples, is that there is a type of conversation where an AI chatbot can actually be really helpful. And there are types when it is either unhelpful or harmful. And I think over time, you know, I really think it's up to the AI bot creators to help steer the conversations towards the thing that's good at. What I my argument with Chat GPT is it's confidently incorrect. And I would love it if Chat GPT to be able to say that's not an area I know well. Let's talk about blah and, and steer the conversation towards things it's actually good at. Oh, so so here is here is a paradigm it, uh, that that I'll share, and then we can go off to the the mailbag if you oh, want. Sure. Oh, mailbag! <laughs> well, I'm going to do paradigm first, and we don't have a paradigm. <laughs> oh, I like the little uh, inflection at the end there. It's not for nickels; it's a paradigms. <laughs> okay, I got coins in my pocket. Uh, Two quarters and a pair of dimes. We should go to ChatGPT and say, write a happy song about (laughs) paradigm. Um, First and foremost, two two things. Wait, hold on. First and foremost, two things. That's that's you're contradicting already. Are you an AI? Are you a confused AI, Brent? And the horse you rode it on. All right, go on. All right. I have found that ChatGPT can be explained pretty well with the use of two metaphors. Okay. Mm-hmm. Number one, it is the world's biggest, best parrot, but it's a parrot. Okay. It So just like if you had a parrot that, that learned to speak just like your wife, it is mimicking it doesn't know what it's saying. It's just mimicking the yeah. sounds. Okay? We all get it. Good. Uh, good. The second thing, it's like a genie that grants wishes. Okay. The You are geeky enough to know this about genies, right? They will grant you a wish, but never the way, because they're evil bastards. They'll never do it the way you would expect. Like if you if you ask for a wish of hey I wish to be a world champion swimmer they'll turn right? you into a fish or a they, dolphin they, exactly the solution with GPT is very similar to to first realizing it's a parrot and the second thing the way you work around the genie problem is when you ask your wish you have to be so specific that it only has one choice. And that's the grant, exactly the wish you, you look for. And it's the same thing with GPT. Now, in terms of using it in a in a IQ type space, like I know a lot of people are trying to use it to like parse out log files or generate help files to solve problems. It will always generate things plausible, uh, but because it's a fantastic parrot, but it really doesn't have, it doesn't, 
have any knowledge. So it doesn't know that any of its facts are true or not true, just quite honestly. So using it in a, in a, I, in, in any sort of technological thing that has nothing to do with right interacting with humans or 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 generating uh, or, or dealing with emotional creatures it, it's just not going to go well right there is a there is a law and systems theory i don't know if you've you've ever heard of this that one of the laws and systems theory is that the number of problems in the universe is constant so as we as we create things like GPT and we go, oh, look at all the things we can solve with it, then we very quickly realize, oh, we could have it generate help files. Uh, but now we need, you know, five human beings to go through and fact check all so of these So what you're saying is files, the law right? is every solution generates a new yet unknown problem. Right. Right. At least one. Right. Because sometimes a solution will will solve multiple problems including the one that you sure. targeted, right? So, so chat GPT, anyway. there we go. Um, thank you. That was the AB te- the GPT testing podcast. GP testing. Change your <laughs> name to George. I'll be Paul. We'll be GP testing. No, let's do a mailbag. Mailbag. So Rasmus, who's on my team at Unity, posted a mailbag question. <gasps> you may be asking yourself right now, how can Alan, Brent, how can I, post a question that you will answer on your podcast. All you have to do is join our Slack group. It's free, really free. There's no like, give us a credit card for 12 free months. Then we charge you. It's free. Go to moderntesting.org. Click on the link. If it doesn't work, click on it again. It'll work the second time. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't work the first time, yeah, on Slack. And- so anyway, go to the mailbag or anywhere on there and ask a question. So that's how you do it. And, and if you are one of uh, Alan's, team this is a great way to to get an active hour every two weeks of your vp's time addressing the things that you care about apparently so anyway um (laughs) um it's a good question it's relevant but it's good for to bring it up from a third party because i was thinking about this and i know there are stories at microsoft about this particular challenge and how we did it i just can't remember them so if you help me remind me I think we can get through it. Otherwise, I'm going to read the whole question and we're going to go, we don't know. But let me see if I can get through this. And I'm going to skip a few words because Rasmus used too many words. Not No, he used just the right amount of words, but it's more words than I can read. So the, the question is a topic around large migrations. And when you're in any sort of infrastructure support role, whether this is my, my editorial, whether it's an org like mine doing cloud infra platforms, developer experience, or even anywhere in the data world or even in the test world, often we're migrating stuff from one system to another. And maybe we even talked about a little bit with migrating bug databases. Uh, that's my edit, my editorial. So Rasmus's question Topic is large migrations involving moving years of data, i.e. moving to another platform, system provider, including business data, model data, build and deployment configurations, etc. Here are the questions. What is the approach people are taking? Based on experience, I prefer lift and shift, i.e. migrating with as few changes as possible to make this continue running. Editorial, uh, a lot of teams move to the cloud this way. They'll take their workload running on a bare metal server. They'll lift and shift it to run in, on a cloud cloud service. And then optimize to take advantage of the cloud, you know, scaling, et cetera, later. 
ways you can verify the system is running correctly on the new platform. I have ideas here. Um, besides running existing tests for the system, any experience with tools or frameworks for validating data consistency across different platforms. For example, could the data be stored in different cloud database systems? Um, Rasmus's experience here is that part of validating typically requires custom tests just, for, just to verify the migration, just for this purpose. Uh, data sync strategies. In case you need to, in case you need, or when you need to run both systems side by side, how do you not get data corruption or data duplication, et cetera? Then there's the 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 part where almost the harder part, the the non-technical challenge here, is when these migrations involve several teams or organizations. Um, and I have an example I want you to talk through, Brent. You may have more insight. Mm-hmm. But I'll get back to that in a second. So thoughts on most effectively planning these large cross-company things. Um, if you have if you have obvious examples, I write, you can start. I have a couple things I want to bring up around these bullet points. But how do you want to go? Yeah, the the first one, which is which is the general approach. For example, lift and shift. No, it, so I'm thinking through in terms of the uh, the um, in terms of a migration to the cloud, right? I'll say the Kanban side of me will say, yes, absolutely, lift and shift, right? You want to you, you want to release as frequently as possible. So what that what that kind of means is you want to minimize the number of change. Right. If you try to re-architect at the same time of moving the data, there's there's a great deal of risk. And I've I've talked on the podcast before around how that's something my team actually did in a two week sprint. And it took us three months to unscrew it. Incremental positive change in that direction. However, typical cloud with, with my cloud hat on, cloud strategies are different than, than the old school, like on-prem strategies. And there's some pros and cons uh, around leveraging uh, that information or, or the, those, those new architecture styles. In this case, I probably would do, I would probably do a lift and shift. I don't think I've ever directly managed something, the scope that I see implied here, right? That there's a, there's a program program I'm on right now where, where there's uh, a bunch of teams and we're all trying to use each other's data towards a common goal and we have the ability to share, but right, because we all have different schema and different rates at which the data comes, right? It's a big knowledge sharing tangled mess. Uh, but to the first question, I, I think, I think I would start with the lift and shift and then immediately it proved that we have migrated it off. I guess it depends on their goal, but proved that we have migrated off the old system and then um, start building a, I guess, a V3 off of using the now readily available cloud architecture models. You mean like optimize, lift lift and shift that take advantage of, of any opportunities for improvement you have from running in the cloud, assuming the lift and shift was from bare metal to the cloud. I read right, an article today exactly. I shared in my five for Friday on someone lifted and shifted the other way. They saved money by, by, and again, uh, if you pay attention to cloud costs, which 
it's free at Microsoft, so you don't. But I read an article from a company who it's a fairly small company, but they moved their roughly $3 million worth of AWS spend to they lifted and shifted that to bare metal, their, their own bare metal. And depending on how you're using it, it can be cheaper. Networking is super expensive in the cloud. Um, storage is fairly expensive and not very hard to get discounts on. So if you're mainly building a, a public cloud, uh, for example, say I want to build, I don't even know what, if Dropbox is in the cloud or not, but Dropbox is largely network and storage. I got to imagine, and I could model this out, but I got to imagine that's cheaper. Totally off on a tangent here, but things to think about when you're choosing to migrate. Not all the cool kids need to be in the cloud. Now, I, it's it's actually so because of the layoffs and such hitting here at Microsoft, right? I've, I've gone through in terms of what my team owns and runs and started a program around, you know, leaning up because I figure every dollar I, I'm able to save is a dollar, well, saved that might save someone else's job. And I still have a desktop machine. Oh, I, I, I want to tell a story here, but I came this close to building myself a new desktop machine. I had, I have a case that I'm happy with and a power supply that's still fairly new. So I bought about really about 800 bucks worth of stuff that would give me a pretty good desktop machine, but I stopped and bought a laptop instead. My desktop, last time I, last, last one I bought, I bought in 2018. It is still a killer machine. And when I bought it, it was $1,200. Whereas laptops, I mean, it's now the price of my, the phone that I, Mm -hmm. I just bought. Yeah. I'm, I just, I haven't received my new laptop yet. I'll brag about it next time we're on the podcast. I'm pretty, I hope I'm happy with it as it looks like on paper. But anyway, some of the things I was thinking about were, so I was trying to remember what happened and how we migrated away from all of our old stuff into what's called today the absolute stupidest product name ever, Azure DevOps, but from into Visual Studio Team System. We migrated, it wasn't just test cases, there were work items that got transferred over. Was that just a database migration? W- like, and there was WTT, which stood for, I think, w- wasting testers' time in there. WTT to TFS, Product Studio to TFS. Like the closest. Like how do we handle those migration? Because I don't remember, and I wasn't involved in them directly. I. And it, and I don't either. Like the biggest one I remember doing was Slime to Source. Oh yeah, I remember that. And Slime was this SLM. I forget what it stood for, but it was it was a it was a horrible source something manager. Source line source no source blood source something manager. I don't know. Um, and. That was the biggest one that was corporate wide, and I, I don't remember anything about it. And I would also say it was somewhat irrelevant to Rasmus. Oh, it is. Question. It is. And SLM. I don't know if you know. Slime was uh, market. It was an external product for a while called Microsoft Delta. I did not. Yeah, we know bought that. a copy at MidiSoft. We had it there. Um, anyway, um, so one thing maybe you can go into. So when you're migrating a data processing app, so you have a I'm not sure what Microsoft uses for this. It's like you, you may know this. Say you have a system that's processing data and you need to bring up a V2 of this system processing data. 
What do you do about data sync to make sure you can process like the same data and compare without double counting anything? Maybe Bing had to do this. I don't know. It's generally just a, right. You go, go through and you run through and test it. Like it. So if you have your existing test cases, which I believe response already mentioned, uh, if it is a if it is a pure lift and shift, and then then that's pretty lightweight, right? Because you, you're like, okay, put input here. Did do I continue to get what I expect? I don't remember ever doing anything particularly complex there. It's different if I'm changing the architecture. So right, and let me talk about that for a second. About I can't. I think I talked to someone through this once. I didn't do it myself, but the lift and shift is, of course, you can lots of just search that term on the internet if you're not sure what it is moving everything exactly the same pretty much one place to another someone asked me once how i would migrate a network appliance to the cloud where it's a black box you don't know how it works you can't lift and shift it because you don't have enough insight into how it's working and the idea behind this network appliance is they have they have some api endpoints which you can call them and they give you back you know something relevant important basically right. The lift and shift is hard because you don't know everything it does. So in that case, you could take more of an incremental approach and put, I would, for example, maybe this, maybe this is a lift and shift. Like my answer there was, and I'm curious to hear your feedback on this, is put something like a load balancer in front and send, so one, you have to figure out what, what it does. Okay. Okay. It gets this request and it returns this data. I know how to do that. So I'm going to. Just take that call and process it in the cloud and return the right value from maybe a different database. And eventually, more of a trickle and shift, shift and trickle. I'm not sure what to call that. But eventually, you're kind of reverse engineering. And I'm not sure if this is even relevant, but just remember the conversation I had about this a few months ago. But it's eventually a reverse engineering in order to migrate it, which honestly, with some systems that are legacy, may be the way you have to do it. It, so if you have a black box and, and you don't know what it's going to do, maybe it depends on on how much onion peeling you think. The question is, is it a black box by design or is it just because it's so damn old? Yeah, that no but one think knows about these the systems. What about is? these systems that are so old people are afraid to touch them? Would you really lift and shift that or would you re-architect? Like, how do you go about that? Let's say you have a crusty old system and you need to get it running in a different database, in the cloud versus metal, in a different, you know, in some sort of different platform. How do you go about that one? I have a, I have a very concrete example on that one. Perfect. This is why we're here. Cosmos. You yes, remember? I remember Cosmos, the big fat database in the cloud, data lake in the cloud. Cosmos, Cosmos is a gigantic data lake in, um, internal to Microsoft. Um, By the way, just editorial, lightning fast. Sometimes the answers to your queries would come back in hours. It was fantastic. You, you've you got it to come back in hours because most of the things I do, it's like start it before, the, before you leave for the weekend. And if you're lucky, it'll be there before you leave for the next one. Massively big data is, is the, the thing about it. So they have a bunch of extensions that you can add to it, including like parsing DLLs or DLLs written C-sharp that will take a value, 
you know, parse it, um, calc, do a calculation, and then I'll put a different value. That DLL, there's a DLL that we relied on, and that DLL had not been touched in seven years. And we decided to go and do a lift and shift, and it had been so much forgotten, we didn't even recall that that was a dependency. So we did a lift and shift, and sure enough, thing immediately borked on, hey, cannot find DLL. And we're like, what the hell are you talking about? We couldn't find the, not only had, since the thing hadn't been changed in years, like no one was still around to know, you know, where it might have been, been checked in if it was checked in. And so pure black box, we could have, we could have just figured out how to deploy it in the new thing. But no, that's exactly what we did is we said, okay, we had a whole lot of data. So it was very easy to sort of rebuild it. We didn't really have a choice. We didn't rebuild it smartly because at that point in time, we had committed to lift and shift and we're like, crap, we're offline now. We need to get back online. That said, in that same aspect, I am doing, my team is starting a, a project where we're we're going to try to build the same thing we did with a massive map reduce into more of a streaming style, which will mean it'll mean a bunch of new benefits. But since the number of problems in the universe is constant, it'll be a bunch of new problems, too. So I have what no are doubt. some heuristics you use to help determine, say, as a migration project falls in your lap? What do you what do you do to figure out whether to use lift and shift migration versus a either short or quick rewrite migration? ROI. Elaborate, please. I I just look at, okay, so you have two alternatives, rewrite or move it, right? Well, you just say, well, what's the benefit of both? If there's absolutely no benefit to either, uh, then it's going to be whichever one's cheaper. If there's no benefit to either, wouldn't the right answer be do nothing? No, if you have to migrate, your choice is lift or shift or rearc, rearchitect. It's in it's it's the the system is over here on pillar A, and we need it moved to pillar B. We either move it or we rebuild it on pillar B, right? It, it, did you know the London Bridge is is in Lake Havasu in Nevada? Uh, no, I thought it was in Arizona. Arizona, yeah. Do you know how they moved it there? Piece by piece? Yeah, they took it apart and then rebuilt it. Yeah, just like Legos. Right. Uh, they didn't They didn't get massive helicopters and hook up things and fly it over whole, right? That's so kind so of the in choice. that case, lift and shift wasn't going to work, you're going to say. If it was a smaller right. bridge moving a mile downstream, that maybe that would be the better, a better choice. Right. That's Again, a good metaphor. I'm going to use that sometime. Moving to, um, damn it, Ellen. Damn it, Brent. The train of thought was already difficult yeah, to I'm hold on to. Yeah, I'm sorry for having a conversation. I, I I forgive you. I'm low on caffeine, so I'm not going to fight back hard. I'm filled uh, with the, <laughs> I'm filled with the bubbles of limoncello Lacroix. When I talk about ROI, right? It's it's essentially uh, all right. Are there any advancements? Are there any new? things we could do with this system or this with this data by doing a rearchitecture 
in real things, not like hypotheticals, like future hypothetical futuristic stuff. When people, hey, we should re-architect because one day somebody, I'm like, stop, stop. No shit. Wanna- oh, yeah. So <laughs> this, this exactly what you're talking about, recognizing ROA and getting people to shut up and they go, wouldn't it be cool if this goes back all the way to our very first conversation? This is why critical thinking and systems thinking are so critical to solve problems in the world of software and not just knowing the ON algorithm for sorting your shoes in your closet. And going back to last episode, why human society is doomed because intellectual laziness is so friggin' seductive. This is what I am fighting hard against. I am a school of the philosophical learning. I don't know what this, what to call my school yet, but I have a school, and it's about actually paying attention to crap around you and not and not just blindly doing shit like. Now I can go in the whole blind faith and the people repeating the same tropes over and over on LinkedIn, but I'm not going to. But the reason why they do that is because everyone has limited time. No one has the ability to research everything on their own at some point in time. Right. This is how this is to me. This is the area where chat GPT is helpful. I use it for brainstorming, not for solving things, not for answers, but to help me think about things in different ways. But that's. That actually, sadly, is one of the speeches I've been giving people is essentially quit trying to make GPT solve your scenario. Instead, figure out what things it does really well and change your scenario to take advantage of that. Yes. Right. It is nearly impossible to get GPT to stop making up shit. Okay. Nearly impossible. Which means anything that you try to do that is fact-driven, it's going to cost you more than the benefit because you're going to need, at least in the tech industry, because you're going to need people to go through and make sure it didn't lie. You're going to need an army of fact-checkers for GPT, right? Sure. Um, However, it is absolutely the world's best writer of fiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if there are scenarios that are more EQ uh, centric, again, without building the personality, that's that's the thing that scares the crap out did of me. Did you know? Did you know? And we're all, we lost our subject. Rasmus, hope we answered your question yep, there somewhere. Yep. But did you know that ChatGPT is already listed as the co-author of several books on Amazon? I did. <laughs> I did. Did. I'm waiting for Chat GPT to get a co-writing credit on a pop hit. Well, so what it's inevitable. Things, it's what, inevitable. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I don't even know what they're gonna do there. Like this, the the humanities, the humanities are gonna take it in the short and curlies. With, Let me. With, because I come from this background and my daughter's yeah. an artist. Let me share a conversation we have had about AI recently, which is really interesting. And you're going to roll your eyes a little bit, but I got to share this. And this is probably mainly from Molly or people that people in our audience that, uh, that get the art side of the tech world. But I use Dolly uh, image generation to generate my, uh, my cover art for my weekly Substack article. And I was talking to my daughter about this and she said, well, that's you're cheating artists out of their, out of their art. And I say, you should pay them to do that. I said, I don't know who to pay Dolly, these AI tools. They, they 
get their ideas from art that already exists. I say, if it credited them, I would credit them. I would pay them. I would love to make a micropayment or a payment of a dollar or $5 that would go make micropayments to everyone this artist derived from, but it doesn't give you that. I say, is it a copy of anybody's art? It says, no. Inspiration? Maybe. But here is the deal. All art, all art, music, painting, it's all derivative. It's all derivative. Okay. It's all based on, like, can I say every rock song is a ripoff of some blues song from 1944? Well, well it is. No. Well, it is, but it isn't. You know, every chord progression has been done. Flares of every melody have been done. There are lawsuits all the time because a song sounds kind of like another song. Paintings especially. Art is, when it comes down to, art is derivative. Art isn't the thing. This is the part that I learned when I was studying all kinds of bizarre anti-music in, in grad school especially. Art isn't the thing. Art is is the audience's reaction to the thing. Oh, okay. So. Right. But the, no, but your daughter's, your daughter's pushback is you're, you're, you're stealing money from the mouths of the poor artists. Absolutely. And, and I know what, and here's the deal. I am, but, but also I could all, in one hand, yes, I am. And in a perfect world, I would love to make a payment for that derived art and have that automatically just, it's going to sound like blockchain, but have it go feed all the people that derives from the same can be said for any sort of music. that's derived through AI, but why don't let's say I'm not using AI and I make a pop song. There's tools. AI can go analyze it and tell me I could write a song today. I'll write a bad pop song, fully original, fully based on melodies that come to my mind at the time, chord progressions that are based on standard pop chord progressions. I could record that song badly and then give it to AI to tell me, okay, who do I have to attribute and pay for this song if I make money off of it? The AI should be able to just go tell me rather than the lawsuits we have today. When I go record something that sounds a little bit like stand by me, which is probably derivative of something else, just, Hook all art up to the blockchain. So when we make our essentially derivative bit of art, everyone who I derive that from directly or indirectly, consciously or subconsciously gets their slice of the pie. I would love that. Then AI can play right alongside with us and it's all fair. Today, we don't work in that world. And I would love to pay if, if there's an artist that for I would pay five to ten bucks a post. Um, I don't make any money off my my pod my blog post, but I'm happy to give money. I'm happy to support artists having been one. If there is an artist who on call every Saturday wants to make me a square drawing of a weasel to use in my posts uh, for 10 bucks or so, let me know until then I'm going to cheat and use AI. Yeah. I don't, there, there's, there's a whole set of things coming, right? It's, it's exactly what we just talked about. It's the number of problems in the universe is constant. It is. It is. So really what I'm connecting here is there has not been an ethical use yet of blockchain. But wouldn't it be the solution to help make sure that because they, they want to use blockchain and NFTs to help make sure derivative art for in the digital world are always attributed to the owner or creator of that art. Why don't we apply that same thing to to real world forms of art? 
now that we have the AI that can analyze them and figure out from a, from a, again, potentially we have the AI to potentially analyze the potential database of all potential previous art forms, figure out where the derivation comes from. Yeah, I don't. So my, my daughter is an artist as well. She and I have had this conversation or, or versions of it. And I think if any AI art generating AI got accused of that, I don't know how it's going to be trackable. Right. Well, it, because I agree. I agree. But potentially, I mean, this solves the lawsuit problem in music and it solves the, and it helps understand the, the challenge that everything is. I mean, I don't know if everyone realizes this, but everything is at, at the very least an unconscious, unintentional derivative of something has happened before. Well, so you've seen all the different comedians who have to do the fun little thing by playing the one six four two one six four five one um chord progression and then showing, look at all the songs that fit this. Yeah, there's a reason for that because there's songs people like want, makes them smile when they hear on the radio. Well, and then and the other thing too, I was listening on the radio today that that I, I didn't pick up what AI did is, but an AI is able to identify the patterns to what makes a happy song. Of course, absolutely. Right? It goes apparently verse, chorus, verse, chorus, and it has whistles, and right? <laughs> and it, it's like it, it can generate a recipe, right? And once, once you understand the patterns to things, which is what these AIs do, all they do is just understand patterns. Right. But what they don't have, and I would deepen in the music thing, we do need to close here, is, for example, they're going to have the most common patterns, but they don't have the the nuance to detect like, oh, we should close on a double chorus here. No, the way this song is going, we should close on the bridge. And little thing, those little things are different. The, the general pattern is the same. Put it this way. Like I took theory, of course, music theory in college, and we spent a year and a half studying, like, mastering the rules. And then six months, three months, learning how to break them. The true create the art comes in breaking the rules in creative ways. I mean, the the art being the better reaction from the audience. So what AI will blow for you, AI will give you the general pattern that works. It will generally work. But anyone can write. A, there are so many general pop songs that aren't important. They're not good. They don't inspire anything. The ones that do, the ones that catch you are the ones that just go, that they color just enough outside the lines to get you. And then if you're an artist, you will, if you follow certain artists, and I could go, I should go to a whole music show here, but you will see they will use certain fundamental musical elements over and over in their songs to generate reaction they've seen happen before. The half step up key change, the, 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 the vocal drop of, you know, up a second, down a six that a lot of popular people do over and over and over and over. They'll use those thematic elements because they know they work, but they only work for them. So you can't copy it if you're a different artist. It doesn't, just doesn't work as well. All right. <laughs> anyway, how do we get here? I don't know, but this was a fun podcast. Uh, anything else you want to add before we close? I just want to say you mentioned derivative, but it occurs to me it, it's nothing more than a new idea. And where do ideas come from? So, yeah, what you're saying is in, in a roundabout way, all new ideas derive from old ideas. That's what I'm saying as well. Yeah. Everything's derivative. Exactly. And, it, and if everything. Oh, that's is, the name of my album. If when, every, I, when I record an <laughs> album of this AI generated bullshit, I'm going to call it everything is derivative. Fantastic.
Um, Songs to Soothe by Alan Page. So if everything is derivative, I I don't know. I don't know how an AI is ever going to be sued for this. Like, go for it. I don't want I don't want the AI to be sued. I want the AI to make sure people can get paid. I want artists to get paid. Yeah, I don't, and I want to use AI to make sure it happens. I, I don't know how it will do that, but okay, yeah. I don't know either. I'm just saying what I want. Fair enough. I also want pink bunnies to fly out of my butt. Why would you want that? I don't know. I just said it. Okay, uh, that's all <laughs> for this time. We'll talk again next time. We can talk about like how I quit my job. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. Bye. Walking on.